Modern edition, it runs to seven volumes. I say all this merely to demonstrate how much there is to know about our medieval ancestors, and not to pretend that I have in some way managed to scale this mountain all by myself. For the most part, I have not even had to approach the mountain at all, for this book is grounded on the scholarly work of others. Nevertheless, even the secondary material for a study of Edward I presents a daunting prospect. At a conservative estimate, well over a thousand books and articles have been published in the last hundred years that deal with one aspect or another of the king's reign. For scholarly works on the 13th century as a whole, that figure would have to be multiplied many times over. By this stage, anyone who had quizzed me about the making of this book, assuming they were still listening, must have had a third question forming in their minds, though they were all too polite to pose it. That question, I imagine, was, why bother? Why devote a sizable chunk of one's own life to re-examining the deeds of a man who has been dead for seven centuries? The answer, as I hope the finished product will make clear, is that the reign of Edward I matters. Not for nothing did I settle on a subtitle that includes the phrase, The Forging of Britain. This period was one of the most pivotal in the whole of British history, a moment when the destinies of England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland were decided. It was also one of the most dramatic. Edward summoned the biggest armies and the largest parliaments seen in Britain during the Middle Ages. He built the greatest chain of castles in Europe. He expelled the Jews, conquered the Welsh, and very nearly succeeded in conquering the Scots. We are often told these days that we ought to have a greater sense of what it means to be British. I hope that this book goes some small way towards fulfilling that need. Naturally, this is not the first attempt to broach the subject, nor, I predict, will it be the last. In the 20th century, Edward I was examined at length by two eminent medieval historians, Maurice Powick and Michael Prestwich. As the notes at the end of this book make clear, my debt to both is very great. During several years of writing and research, I have turned to their books constantly and repeatedly, and have always been struck by insights that would not have occurred to me from the original evidence. And even when I have looked at the evidence and reached different conclusions, their work has always provided me with an invaluable starting point. The main way in which my work differs from theirs is in its construction. Both Powick and Prestwich chose to approach Edward thematically, devoting whole chapters to his lawmaking, his diplomacy, and so on. I have opted for a chronological treatment, which gives the following pages some claim to originality. No one has attempted to tell Edward's story from beginning to end since before the First World War, which effectively means that no one has told his story in this way since the invention of medieval history as a modern academic discipline. Of course, such a chronological approach has certain inherent drawbacks, Some academic readers may be disappointed that there is not more here on Edward's statutes or his governmental inquiries. I can only offer the excuse that the discussion of such topics would have been hard to incorporate into an already complicated narrative without the whole thing grinding to a halt, and that in any case, these topics have been well covered elsewhere. I also take some comfort from recent research which suggests that the English Justinian probably had no hand, and perhaps little interest, in drawing up the laws that were issued in his name.
On a more positive note, the task of putting the events of Edward's life in their correct order has led me to question existing orthodoxies more frequently than I had imagined might be necessary. I hope that the new interpretations I have offered in their place will be found convincing, or at least stimulating, by other medievalists. Edward I or Edward IV Before the reign of the king we call Edward I, England had been ruled by several other kings who shared his name. The trouble was that even from a 13th century standpoint, they'd all lived a very long time in the past. At the time of Edward's accession in 1272, even his most recent royal namesake, Edward the Confessor, had been dead for more than two centuries. Everyone in the 13th century remembered the Confessor, for by then he had become the patron saint of the English royal family. But when it came to the...